Uh, we're here celebrate, still celebrating Easter. Last week was Easter. We celebrated the resurrection from the dead, and we're continuing in that because uh, it is too big of a thing to hold to just one day. Uh, but that's also because uh, the story doesn't end there. You know, if we see the, res- the, the resurrection is not the last thing that happens in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the story actually continues. Uh, we see an aftermath to the resurrection. Uh, we see an aftermath of doubt and confusion for a period. And we also see um, evidence that this is actually, in a way, a new beginning, that there's a new chapter opening in the story of God's people that's starting there with the resurrection and moving forward into the future. And we kind of sit in the middle of that, where we look back to the resurrection and we look forward to the, the future end of the story when the resurrection of the body and when Christ will make all things new. So we are going to continue on here um, in this section one more week in, in Luke 24 um, and finish up uh, the end of the book. And then we'll jump back earlier uh, starting next week uh, to some of the sections that we skipped. Um, I do want to say that this is a long section. You see, we made it all the way onto the third page here. And, you know, we've read some some long sections here in the past. And but if you're used to just Sometimes we can get used to reading uh, short phrases and parsing out words, but uh, one of the ways that the Bible operates is through stories. Uh, even in long sections, we see a lot of um, uh, narrative skill. We see dramatic ironies and such, and that is part of the way that God is designed to communicate what he wants to communicate to us. So let me just invite you to get comfortable. Uh, we'll have some story time together. Um, and uh, let's, let's read uh, uh, this section of God's Word, Luke 24, 13 to 53. Just to catch you up, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appeared to um, a couple of uh, women who have come and given the disciples the report of his resurrection, whom uh, didn't fully believe them. And Peter has just run uh, to see for himself uh, the empty tomb. And so we're picking up at that point. That very day, two of them, uh, being the disciples, uh, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened." Moreover, some women of our company amazed us, and they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. 
So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifted up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And we're continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that um, my words this morning would be both true and edifying and would serve your purposes. And ask that you would open up our hearts, uh, open our eyes and our ears and our minds, that we might understand what you have to say to us and that you would teach us and that you would grow our faith and love for you. In Christ's name. Amen. I want to start by saying that this is, believe it or not, this is, I think, a very relatable section of Scripture, um, even though that it is about uh, fantastical things like resurrection from the dead. Um, but we, what we see in here is in the aftermath of these things, we see an awful lot of doubt, and we see an awful lot of confusion. Um, and this is something that I think that um, hits with a lot of us very close to home, and it is something that we, um, we understand very deeply. But it's a particular kind of doubt, and I want to talk about doubt this morning, and it's a big subject with many facets to it. Um, there's a particular kind that I want to talk about that we see here, though, is the kind of doubt that comes with disillusionment, um, with discouragement, with confusion, and it in that kind of doubt that inevitably leads to a lack of joy. Uh, that's what we see here in the disciples um, as they are struggling to comprehend uh, what Jesus has done, and they, in their discouragement and in, in their confusion and how the story has not gone the way they intended, that the big, uh, how it manifested itself in their lives was a deep sadness. They were really sad, it says here, and they were discouraged um, and, and, and missed uh, what was going on around them and what Jesus was up to in this time. Uh, I'll give you an illustration. Um, Lauren and I like to, our family, we like to camp. We used to hike more often than we do um, before we had 
so many children. Uh, but the first trip we went on together, uh, we took our friend Catherine, who's a very dear friend of ours, and we went up to uh, Linville Gorge in North Carolina. If you've ever been there, it's uh, very steep. It's very beautiful. It's where um, search and rescue teams would practice because they had so many people got lost down in there. And we kind of wanted an easygoing trip, so I asked a friend of ours, is there anywhere we can just go and camp up on the ridge and have a beautiful view and have an easy time? My friend Catherine had just had knee surgery, um, so he said, yeah, go to this parking lot, this trail, walk down there, and then you'll see a bunch of campsites. It's a great spot. So we said, okay. We packed up all of our stuff. We took a lot of stuff because we wanted to be comfortable. We had, I had stuff under both arms. I had a pot on my head, which was the prompting of many jokes, as you can imagine. And we started off down this trail. It was an hour and a half of steep downward hiking where the mountain came like this, and then there was the trail, and then it went down like this, and there was nowhere to camp. And it was getting terribly dark uh, by the end of it. And we were kind of freaked out. And for most of the hike, we were in one of the most beautiful places, like the, in, in the area. Like it was truly gorgeous. It was late fall. The leaves were in color. There's just the signs of winter coming on the leaves. Uh, really very enjoyable. But in that question that maybe we got the wrong directions, all of it was a miss. And that entire trip down, it was like that all of the beauty was missed. Like this is not, um, we didn't even pay attention to it. Um, it was due to our confusion and discouragement. And I think that's kind of where the disciples are. Like we know that Jesus is work, at work uh, because we've read this story many times that we need to stop and take stock of just the level of doubt um, um, that they were facing. And as we do that, if we look at our own lives, I think we live in a very doubt-filled culture um, and time. I think that skepticism and slowness to believe anything is actually held as as an honorable trait. Um, Those that um, jump into something too quickly are too easy to be duped. Um, That's seen as um, less intelligent. We pride ourselves in being able to sniff out uh, media bias and those kind of things. To be agnostic is is intellectually superior um, in our minds to not commit to anything. Um, and that's all around us. And then we have those events of life um, that come out where it doesn't go the way that we think it should, that are discouraging. And, and we know what this feels like. We know what it feels like to doubt and to be discouraged and to wonder, is this really the right path um, that we're on? Is this going to be a good ending uh, to this trip through life. And that greatly sucks our joy. But what we're going to see here is that this story is a wonderful illustration of how Jesus, um, he has not only defeated and conquered death himself, but that he is actually alive and he is able to finish the story. Not even his own story, but the story of his disciples. But the people that he has called to follow him, that he has the power and the presence and the ability to see the story all the way to the end and bring it to a good conclusion. We see that what seemed like an end for a time was only a new beginning. And it was a new beginning of a new chapter that would be filled with wonderful things. So I want to draw out three things from here, make three points uh, to illustrate this. Uh, I want to see that Christ uh, pursues us in our doubts first. We're going to see that Christ gives us a new way of seeing 
Secondly, and then third, we're going to see that Christ includes us in his ongoing ministry, and that this is a gift. First, I want to make this point that Christ pursues us in our doubts, and this is one of the reasons why I read such a long section, because this is an unfolding of people who had a very hard time believing what Christ had said uh, from the beginning. And there are lots of elements to this that the writer is using to bring this out. If you remember in the last, um, the last story that Charles read, it's actually uh, it's a little bit ironic and entertaining um, that there are these two women went to the tomb and they witnessed that Jesus had risen from the dead. And they came back and told the disciples and the disciples didn't believe them and they thought that it was an idle tale, meaning that it was an old, this was a wives' tale. And the writer is drawing out um, in this culture, in this society, the way that gender was viewed. Um, they had a derogatory attitude towards, um, towards the report of women. Women were not actually not allowed to give testimony in court um, during this time. And so the disciple, they didn't believe it. They said, this can't be true, um, that this is we uh, being men, um, we are not able to be duped in the same way. And so we actually have a better perspective on things. And this is one of those ironic ways where, where God uh, weaves into his story that says, I will have none of this. And he uses their testimony, um, gives them the first witness of Jesus risen from the dead, and sends them back to the group of disciples. And it becomes an indicting aspect of the disciples' story, that because of their own predisposition, they didn't believe. They didn't believe the story. And Jesus undermines this. And of course, this is not about gender. This is the writer is using a a cultural um, practice to highlight the fact that those in this story were not predisposed to faith. In fact, there were many ways they were predisposed to doubt. Follow along in the story. We have Cleopas and his partner. Uh, They are walking along the road um, in this language. They're actually having a heated account together, trying to make sense of all of these things that they had been following. So these are not some of the 11. These are other disciples that were part of the group, had been following after Jesus. They depended on him. He was crucified, and it was very confusing. And they had a story, an account that maybe he's risen from the dead, and that's confusing, and they don't, make, they don't make sense of it. And Christ comes and walks with them, and they don't know that it's him. It's the writer is showing, using this to show a level of blindness that exists. And he opens up the scriptures to the point where they say their hearts burn inside of them, um, that of just the wonder of how well he exegetes the scriptures. And they still don't know who he is. They don't know who he is until they are having a meal with him, and Jesus opens up their eyes and allows him to see him for who he is. They're not predisposed to faith. It was the same for the disciples. It was the same for these two. And I want us to, we need to notice this. Um, Because one of the great ironies of the story is that especially these disciples, that this is who Jesus chose in order to take out the message to other people. If we follow into the book of Acts, to plant churches and to proclaim this message. They weren't predisposed to faith themselves, but they were predisposed to doubt. And the way that Jesus worked in their lives, it was not in an immediate moment, but he even kept them from understanding at some, in some points in order that he might unfold the story in a long and slow way 
so that they would be brought to the point when they saw Jesus that it would really hit them and they would really get it. Jesus pursues us in our doubts. And we have a lot of doubts. We have a lot of reasons for doubt. Life is going a particular way and something happens and we know intellectually that, you know, Jesus doesn't, we're not in this just for good things and we say that, you know, faith is, is something that we put our faith in Christ and he gives us good things, but it's not an exchange that I do this and therefore I good things. We know this. But yet, when we're following Christ, we're entrusting him with our lives and then bad things happen, discouragement happens, it gets really confusing. It gets hard to hold these things together. And that's where the, it becomes fertile ground for these questions to come up in our minds. That Where am I going? Like, Is this really the path that I thought I was on? And where is this road going to end? But we need to see before we get into what Christ is actually showing us, that that, that sense of doubt is not outside of the realm of his power. It is not something that keeps us away from his pursuit. But God very much on purpose uses weak, as we read in the confession before, weak, hard, and selfish people to take the gospel to weak, hard, and selfish people. He is always in pursuit. He is always after us. He is always working in our hearts as weak, hard, and selfish as we are. That's the first thing. Christ pursues us in our doubts. But what is, so that talks about the reality of his pursuit, um, in some ways the timing of it, and it can be very slow and hard to understand, but what is the message that he is actually, how is he pursuing, and what is this message that he's actually pursuing us with? Uh, this is the second point, that Christ, what Christ is doing in this narrative is he is giving us a new way of seeing. He is giving us a new set of goggles uh, to view our lives and the circumstances uh, that we're in. You notice that blindness is one of the major themes here. Um, the blind, persistent blindness of the disciples, and yet Jesus' power, even in them, to open up their eyes, even the most hard-hearted and doubting people, and to show them um, himself and his pursuit. Um, and so this is a theme. This Seeing is a theme. Um, but just, I want to illustrate how, in some ways in real life, that you know, our minds, we can view things in a different way. We can have new goggles, and it changes radically the way that we view things in life. One of my favorite um, documentaries is, I like David Attenborough a lot in nature documentaries. When I want to check out and watch something interesting, he has a documentary called Life in the Undergrowth, which is a multiple-part series on bugs. And you think about bugs, like I'm not a person who's predisposed to like bugs at all. Um, I, you know, I, I don't really like bugs all that much. Um, and that's kind of our natural response to bugs when we see it. Like often I've wondered why do cockroaches even exist? Like I don't understand that they serve any purpose at all. And so we don't like bugs. We keep them over there and we prefer, you know, our... You know, humans are the ones who really do the great things and, and do the great work in life, rather spend time with the humans. But in unpacking the way that bugs function in our world, um, it is terribly sophisticated and it is terribly creative to the point that if all human beings were wiped out from the earth, life would continue just fine. If all bugs were wiped out from the earth, then everything green would be gone um, in a very short amount of time. 
And it just, it changes the way that we view life. It changes the way that we view God's design. It's not um, us human beings always um, that are at the center of everything and, um, you know, the movers and the shakers making good things happen. Sometimes these little and unattractive things are the most significant. Um, and it really changes my mind, uh, changed my mind quite a lot. But just as a metaphor, this is what Christ is doing, is he's taking the same set of circumstances that they, that, that they have been in and they have witnessed, and he is giving them a new way of looking at them. And first, he gives them a new way of seeing scripture. Um, this might be, this is one of the familiar passages um, where we go to to talk about uh, that the way that we read scripture, that it is all about Christ. And he shows them that even from the beginning, um, the work that God has been doing in the world um, has always been barreling towards Christ, and in particular, barreling towards his death and resurrection. That he's showing them that this story that they've been a part of, that the resurrection was not a detour. It was not something that stopped the story, and it was not, um, it was not a mistake that happened, but it was always planned. That this was always the purpose. And even woven into the life of Israel, there were signs pointing that all of these sacrifices we're making, all of these things we're following, that there will be an answer to these things. They will be brought to their fulfillment. And so the, we also see that the way that they had been reading scriptures was they commented that they, what they really were hoping was that the nation of Israel be restored. These tangible benefits, this tangible sense of freedom, a tangible sense of good. But Christ, he changes their way of seeing and he changes in the way that they read scripture. And that this might seem like the most desirable thing. This might seem like what we want. But what Christ has already been, always been up to was a very different plan. That is much bigger than the nation of Israel. It extends to the whole world. And it is much bigger than even these tangible everyday benefits. That the end of it is reconciliation with God. But it's not just scripture, the way that they, he is giving them a new way of seeing, that the particular thing they were having a hard time with in scripture was the fact that Christ had to suffer and that he had to die. And it is suffering, especially in our lives, that we are given a radically different picture of how we view it. It's often the suffering that is the ground where the doubts come out and the discouragement comes because it doesn't make sense to us. But what Jesus is showing them in a picture is that the suffering, even to the point of death of Jesus, was not uh, the end of the story and it was not defeat. It was actually the means through which Christ accomplished good for his people. It was always the plan and it was serving his purposes all along. And that extends, we, we see as the story goes forward, particularly into Acts, that that extends not only to Christ, but this is a pattern that laces the people of God until the end. That the suffering in our lives, we might not like it, just like we might not like bugs. Like, I don't want them in my house and I don't want them on me. But, that it is not the sign of defeat, but it is actually the means through which Christ uses to bring about his end. If we follow the story to the end, even in Revelation, what is it? It is, it is the blood of the martyrs through which Christ brings his kingdom to bear. Where it seems like defeat all along in a mysterious way is actually the process of Christ bringing about good and bringing about his kingdom. 
And what effect does that have on us? This is not saying that we should rejoice in suffering. This is not saying that it is necessarily a good thing. This is not saying that we shouldn't be sad. Because we should be sad. These are the marks of the curse that Christ came in order to die for. But it is showing us that in those moments that Christ has the power to finish the story. If he had the power even over death, then he has power over everything that we will face in life. Even if it ends in our own death, that that is not the end. Christ is marching forward with his disciples into the future in whatever we face. And what he is calling on us to do is this act of faith of putting on these resurrection goggles. It's not about us, but it is about him. We don't understand what we see, but we do see the resurrection. And he is inviting us by faith to re-examine the events of our lives through the lens of the resurrection. That's the second point. But we would be remiss if we don't bring it to the end of this story, because this story doesn't just end in Christ's comfort. And we get a lot of good news out of this, um, of, of knowing Christ's pursuit of us and our weakness and our doubts, and in these resurrection goggles, these lenses he's given us that gives us a new way of seeing life. But that is actually only leads to half a joy. The disciples reach the pinnacle of joy at the very end, after Jesus, um, he has revealed himself to them, and he ascends into heaven, and Christ commissions them to go out and says, you are going to be my witnesses of these things. And I want you to catch the irony of this. Again, these were the least qualified people. These are the people we could say were predisposed to doubt that Christ is then flipping the script on them, and he is giving them a new purpose. That just where you were weak... I'm actually going to give you responsibility and send you into a work that is going to be fruitful and it is going to be satisfying and is good. The Christ includes us in his ongoing ministry. And this is an essential aspect of the fullness of joy that he has laid out for us. He gives us comfort, but he also gives us a new purpose. And this is not just to the disciples, because the disciples' ministry spreads. They go and they plant churches and they bring uh, other people under their wing and this message goes out and out and out. So it is not just the disciples who are witnesses of these things, but we all are. We have all been brought into this new story and been given a new purpose by him in his kingdom. And what does this mean uh, to be a witness? That Christ is, he has invited us into a new way of life. He has invited us to be participants in a new kind of kingdom. And even living out of this kingdom in our worship and our life with Christ, it proclaims his reality to the world. When we forgive each other, it proclaims the security that we have in Christ for ourselves, his care for us. It also proclaims the reality of his forgiveness for us and for other people. When we love each other at cost, it's reflecting the love that we have been, shared, that we have been given by Christ. And it is also reflecting the security we have that we have been loved and we will, be t- we will be taken care of. All of this life that we have been given in Christ bears witness to him, our worship, and our life together. But this is something that we have been called to in particular. This has been something that we have been called to take up in our lives with purpose. And I want to say this hits us each 
in, in, some, in a few different ways, depending on where we're coming. Because some of us in our lack of joy and in our misery, it comes because we are bent and determined because we want life to go in our way. Our lives are kind of like a checklist. I need to get to here so I can get to here so I can get to here. And if I'm not here, I'm behind. And I'm not going to get out of life what I want. I feel like my life is being wasted. Christ is saying that your life is not wasted in him. That the life given to him, he will bring to fruitfulness and fruition wherever he has put you. But he has called you to himself. He has called you to worship of him. And the fullness of joy comes in doing that. And it is actually a mercy sometimes that he calls us out of ourselves and confronts us. That these little kingdoms that we're building, that they're actually making us miserable. And he wants us to entrust them to him, the only one that is actually fruitful. Some of us are longing for purpose and we're confused and he gives that. He gives us the thing that is actually uh, worthwhile uh, to be putting our time into. Some of us, I think, some of us can feel guilty when this is not, um, you know, we feel like we try to do this and we try to live this out, but we just stutter and we fall and, you know, we reach a moment of satisfaction and then it's gone and we are approaching this from that uh, vantage point of guilt. And what I want to say to you is that what God is calling us to, of course, is good. He is calling us only to what is good. But just like the disciples, everybody he calls to this throughout our whole lives, it will always be a walk of grace. It will not be something that we will ever arrive and do good enough without him. But that is actually part of the joy, that God has called you on an adventure to walk with him into the unknown, into the things that he has called you, knowing that it is good and knowing that his grace will go with you every step of the way. That he is always unfolding for his children a new horizon and a new story because of the power of his resurrection. You just bring this around to the hiking trip at the end and think about it in this way. Um, That trip was a lot of fun. Um, It was terrifying at first. Um, but it became the spark of a lot of other trips that we went on, and we kind of made it a yearly tradition for a while. And it kind of became this thing of legend, like it was an essential part of our story um, that we, we always would look back to and rejoice. And it gave birth to a lot of other fun, uh, fun things that we would have in the future. Um, and just like Christ, like we miss what he is up to all the time. And yet he is with us and his grace is sufficient and he is always leading us and he is leading us unto a new horizon. I think what is at stake in this, if we miss what Christ is up to, it's not that he's not going to be on the throne, it's not that he's not going to do good, but that we're going to miss it on the way. That we'll be so bent on our own misery uh, because of our circumstances that we miss the power of what what he is actually doing. And so this is actually an invitation by faith uh, to take joy in him. Uh, I'll stop there and let me pray for us. Father, I ask that you would help us. Would you give us a new vision? Uh, in your pursuit of us, would you uh, reach into our hearts? Um, help us catch uh, the joy that you have laid out for us, um, that we might respond to you by faith. Uh, we might be freed from ourselves, and we might taste a kind of joy that we haven't tasted in a long time. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.